Hey y'all, uh, welcome, welcome to RUF, my name is Simon Stokes, and I'm the campus minister here, and I just want to say welcome to the last RUF of the semester, I mean, this spring has gone by so, so quick, um, and so if you're here, and maybe your first time with us, sorry, it's also the last time for the semester, um, but, <laughs> won't, won't, but, <laughs> but uh, part of what we do here at RUF is we go through, uh, generally books of the Bible, and kind of work our way through those things. And this year we've been going through, or this semester we've been going through the book of Psalms. And looking at the interaction of God's people with the hard things of the world, the good things of the world, the wonderful things of the world, and also with God and where is He at, and those experiences. And that's really what the book of Psalms is about, is people meeting God in the midst of the experience of life. Um, we've gone through really wonderful things. We've gone through envy. We've gone through blessing. We've gone through who God is. There's tons of stuff. We haven't covered, though, uh, there's 150 psalms, and we've done like 10 of them. Um, so we had to cherry-pick our way through some of this stuff. <laughs> but um, I do want to say that if you're interested in, in this and kind of seen more and more about the psalms, just kind of piqued some of your interest, just take some time this summer and read through these things. I mean, you could read two a day and probably be done by the end of the summer. Um, it would not be a huge issue, but it's a really helpful book. It's something that's really guided God's people for several thousand years, and it's been really huge in my life, and I hope your life as well this semester. Um, so let's get going here. Uh, I recently watched a documentary on Netflix called uh, I Hate Christian Leitner. It's an ESPN 30 for 30 documentary. If you haven't ever seen a 30 for 30, it's basically they take awesome sports stories and they turn them into documentaries. And this one was, had the title of I Hate Christian Leitner, if you don't know who that is, he was a Duke basketball player from the 90s. And, uh, you know, we don't like Duke. We're at Carolina. But no matter how you look at it, he was a really great ball player. Uh, he played for four years. Every year he went to the Final Four championship. He was a star of their 91-92 championship wins. His game-winning shot over Kentucky uh, is kind of a huge, iconic moment in college sports. He was the only college athlete selected to play on the Dream Team. It's a huge deal. Uh, but in the documentary... No one seems to like him. And the big question is, why is it that someone who is so good at basketball is so unanimously hated by sports fans? Not just Carolina fans, but like nobody liked this guy. Even his former teammates, who he won the national championship with back in the day, were like, yeah, I didn't like him. <laughs> like, ouch. But the answer that keeps coming back, uh, that the director of the film keeps coming back to, and that it just seems like people keep coming back to, is that he's so good, and he knows it. He's wildly talented, and will play on a team, but that talent is all for him. And those people on that team, they're all for him. And they're all there to kind of showcase how great Christian Leitner is. And the irony of the documentary is that Christian Leitner is this incredible player who is constantly causing as many problems for himself as he's fixing. Like his, his talent opens all these doors, and at the same time, for every door that opens, because of the way that he is in the world, a door closes too. And we kind of, kind of shake our heads when we see that, but I think it raises a good question. is how do you do great things in life and not be consumed by that greatness? Because we all want to do glorious things with our lives. No one comes to Carolina with the expectation that they're just going to go and do a 9 to 5 and watch television on their downtime. Like, people here are wildly talented, very ambitious, you work hard. 
And you get something that people were made for glory. Like you feel that. And you're made for something bigger than yourself. Something more outside of your experience than what you know, you've grown up with. And yet because of our sin, we can take those glorious things, those wonderful things that are part of our lives, and what we do, and we become consumed by them. We exchange the glory of God which we're made for, for the glory of idols. And so tonight I want to talk about two things. Two things here. I want to talk about the false glory of idols. I want to talk about the true glory of God. So, oh, can you hand me my Bible real quick? I left that down there. <laughs> Thank you. So we're in Psalm 115 tonight. And the false glory of idols, the true glory of God. This is God's word. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us, he will bless us, he will bless the house of Israel, he will bless the house of Aaron, he will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. (coughs) Father, um, Lord, as we come to you tonight, we know that we ourselves um, can have ears but not hear, and eyes but not see. Lord, we can have hearts that are cold to you and they should be warm. We can have hands that are closed to the people around us and to yourself. Lord, we know that apart from your work, um, that we cannot hear or see or feel the things that we ought to. And Lord, so I pray tonight that you would help us to see these things, who you are and who you've called us to be, how to love our neighbor and how to love you. And Lord, that we would uh, leave here equipped tonight to serve your son Jesus to know Him and to follow Him throughout our lives. In your sense, we pray. Amen. So what's the false glory of idols? What's the false glory of idols? Look at what the psalmist here says about idolatry. He says, Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. And then this guy goes on to say something about what the gods of those nations are like. They have mouths but don't speak. They have eyes but don't see. Ears but don't hear. Etc. Etc. And his, the point there is that idols have the appearance of being able to do something. But in reality, they can't do the things that we ask of them. They look like they can help us. They look like they can heal us or answer our deepest needs or deepest fears. But they actually can't. They're blind. They're deaf. They don't have hands to actually do anything or voices to actually speak at all. And this isn't just tiny statues. It's anything that you choose to worship aside from God. Ultimately, idolatry here is about control, too, isn't it? They're asking, where is their God? Because I'd like to test him and see if he's the kind of God that meets my standards and will go along with my agenda. You can imagine how well that would go. Um, I read an article recently by a man named David Brooks. He's a New York Times op-ed columnist. 
He's an author. He's a social critic. He had a piece out this last month where he highlighted that our culture operates really with two different sets of virtues, kind of an idolatrous set and then kind of a set that we were really made for and we all kind of feel on a certain level that we were made for. And Brooks says that really these two virtues, sets of virtues can be thought of as resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are the things that we all need to cultivate in order to get ahead in life. I need to focus. I need to build networks. I need to not show weakness. I need to be nice but still competitive. Those are resume virtues. But eulogy virtues, on the other hand, are the things that we want people to say about us at our funeral. He was the kindest person I knew. She always had time to sit and listen and talk. I never heard them say a harsh word. Like, those are eulogy virtues. And we all want those second type of virtues. We all want someone to say something nice about us at our funeral. But we all, in some ways, have to cultivate or live according to the first. And Brooks puts his finger on this and says, you know, if you focus exclusively on those resume virtues, you wind up feeling really empty. He writes, If you live for external achievement, years pass and the deepest parts of you go unexplored and unstructured. You lack a moral vocabulary. It's easy to slip into self-satisfied moral mediocrity. You grade yourself on a forgiving curve. You figure as long as you're not obviously hurting anybody and people seem to like you, that you must be okay. But you live with an unconscious boredom, separated from the deepest meaning of life and the highest moral joys. And gradually this humiliating gap opens between your actual self and your desired self. Between you and those incandescent souls, those people who do the eulogy virtue thing, that you sometimes meet. And I know that it's finals time. I know that we're all really busy and more consumed by schoolwork than normal. And So I'm not trying to push too hard on that. But what, what is Brooks putting his finger on here? That idolizing achievement, getting ahead over the cultivation of that inner life. Idolizing something out there, external, but not putting any emphasis on what's internal. Putting performance over character. How do you know if that's you? Like, how do we know that? Are we busy and constantly surrounded by other people, but do we feel bored and lonely? Do we grade ourselves on a curve, but not extend that same grace to others? Do you ever come close to having a breakdown, but then stop yourself before you do because you've got to hold it together and get stuff done? You know, our idols are often our answer to the deepest fears and longings of our hearts. They're us asking the question, where is God? And instead of actually turning to Him, we answer it with, you know, here He is. And that can be our ability to get things done. That can be that sense of being well-liked by friends or maybe family or professor. Especially as we get into summer vacation, being in beach shape, being physically fit, that can be an idol for us. And it's not that any of those things are bad, it's that we're looking for them to give us life and make us feel whole when they don't actually have that power. We're hoping to live by these things when we should only be using them. And ultimately, that's disappointing and even dangerous. Look at verse 8 here. He says, those who make them, those who make idols, become like them, so do all who trust in them. His point here is this, that worship does two things. It reflects what matters most to us, and it shapes who we are. It show, what you worship shows what you really care about, right? But what you worship also shapes the person that you're becoming. So take something like beauty or achievement or money and place it in the center of your life as more than a good thing, but as the ultimate thing that you worship. That doesn't just mean that this matters. It means that your identity gets wrapped up in it. 
Take beauty, for instance. If you grab a hold of beauty and essentially say, you know, I must be one of the beautiful people. This is who I am. What does that do to you? What does that do to who you are? You know, you judge other people by your standard of beauty. If they reach it, they're in. If they don't, they're out. It's incredibly exclusive. But also, when you reach that standard of beauty, you feel great about yourself. But if you fail that, and let's be honest, it might be an impossible standard to reach, then you feel terrible about yourself. And then add on to that that no matter who you are or how you look now, you're going to get old and you're going to get flabby and your face is going to get wrinkly and ultimately you'll wind up disappointed and empty if beauty is what your life is built on. And all idolatry is like this. If you take money and make it the center of your life, then you'll only see your value and your net worth and people and, the value, and their value of what they can add to that net worth or what they take away from it. Or this is the same for success or being liked. If you're well-liked, then you're okay, but if you... Do something that other people don't like, then you're out. And you'll be on this yo-yo of up and down of other people's expectations, of their hopes, their fears, their dreams for you. Okay, but we were made for, for glory. We were made for beauty. We were made for people. We were made to work. We don't have to live for money, but to eat and to pay rent and to buy clothes. You know, you got to work for money. How do we do great things? How do we get some of this stuff and still stay along with the psalmist? Not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. Well, there's a story in the book of Exodus, one of the first books of the Bible, where Moses, kind of this major Old Testament figure, has just led the people of Israel out of Egypt. He's accomplished this great thing, right? He was a shepherd. He goes and confronts the largest power in the world. He says, let these people go. Pharaoh doesn't want it to happen. God intervenes. And and Moses leads the people out of Egypt in this really spectacular success. He's God's right-hand man. He's, he's in. And he asks God if he can see his glory at one point. And what does God do? He says no. Because he, if he did that, it would kill Moses. But instead he says this. He says, all right, I'll make a deal with you, Moses. I won't let you see the full of my glory, but I'm going to pass by you. I'm going to cover you in the, what he says is the hollow of his hand, and you're going to see the back of my train of my robe. And he does this, and Moses sees that back train, and he's protected by God's glory, from God's glory, and from glory itself, by God. And to be honest, God has to do that for us with all the glory around us. Because we were made for glory, and we were made for doing glorious things, but unless God protects us, our glory will kill us. It will eat us up inside. This is why we have to lean the weight of who we are into God. And trust Him, because ultimately there are no other helps. And there are no other shields. He is our one help. He is our one shield. And apart from Him, we're dead meat, because we'll turn to other things that have no true power to save. Things that have eyes but don't see, ears but don't hear. They have the appearance of being able to help, but not the reality of it. But the God of the Bible is the God who sees, and who hears, and who reaches down and has the power to save us from our deepest fears. And answer all of our greatest longings. And when he blesses and he gives life, he, he gives us himself. Because he's the true source of life. You see, all the good things that you love in the world and that you idolize point back to the one who makes them good. That gives them a reason to be loved. Who gives them their goodness. That those things actually reflect who he is and what he's like. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus didn't say... You know, I am like bread, 
or I'm like light, or I'm like water, I'm even like life. He said that water and bread and light are like Him. That those aspects of those things which are truest to giving and sustaining life, which we love, flow out of His person. That Jesus is true bread to the hungry. That He's true water to the thirsty. That He is the way for those who've lost their path. That He is life to the dead. He's a shepherd to the wandering, to the sick. He's health. To those who feel naked, He's clothing. You see, we look for beauty and fulfillment in all sorts of things. But God is the source of that beauty. He's the source of that fulfillment. He is your help and your shield. And on the cross, when He takes on your sin and your unbelief and your faithfulness, He gives you His right standing. And He gives you His perfect prayers and His perfect teaching. Why? Because He gives you everything that He has. And He's guiding you to become the person He's made you to be. You see, God doesn't expect you to be a Wall Street executive. God doesn't expect you to not be in process of understanding yourself and the world and who He's called you to be. God is fine with your personality. He doesn't want you to become more upbeat, happy-go-lucky. He's fine with who you are. But He does expect you to become like Him in kindness and in love and in patience because you become like what you worship. And if you know Him and worship Him, then you'll become like Him. Not in the sense that you become God, but that you would reflect who He is in the world. And you'd reflect His love to your friends and to your neighbors and your family. Because whatever you take into the center of your life will change you. If you take money or the desire for beauty or the need to be in control into your heart, then those things will make you more like themselves. But take a man who is holy and kind and wise and who prays for his enemies on the cross and you'll become like him. You can be great and you can do great things and you cannot become corrupted by them. Because the one who's in you and who's for you is greater and more glorious and he's uncorruptible. Or you can be small and you can give your life to people because he is life. And you can be weak with people because he is strength. And you can love others to the point of looking foolish because he is wisdom. Because that's who Jesus is. He gives you himself and he makes you like himself. Look at verse 18 here. It ends with this. It says, We will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. You know, the goal of Christianity, the goal of RUF, especially if you're a senior here, the goal of what well, you've been here for four years is, is not that you become more moralistic or more legalistic, but that you would have real life and real joy. That your life would be a life of blessing because you're tied to the God who blesses. And what is true of Him and of His ways is true of His people. And is true of you. And the life that you live now is only a reflection of the life that's to come. You see, the rest of your life here on earth is preparing you for the true, eternal life with God later. And you can get glimpses of what that life is like. But the fullness and the richness of what's to come aren't contained in this present reality. There has to be a for this time forth and forevermore. Because there's so many more good things coming from Him. And so I'll end with this. In a few weeks, I'm taking Katie uh, to the Deepak to see Sufjan Stevens in concert. 
that's right. He's one of my favorite artists out there. Super talented storyteller, really talented inter- instrumentalist, uh, a really deep guy. And I've been wondering um, what this next concert is going to be like because last time I went to see him, his concert was just this incredible combination of just weird and amazing and just like, really, it's just mind-blowing. He's this on stage, skinny, disheveled, like hipster-looking guy, but he's wearing this like huge, beautiful pair of butterfly wings, and there's like a chorus of other people wearing butterfly wings, and he's strumming on a banjo, singing like the best version you've ever heard of Away on a Manger, and while behind him on video is this loop of planes taking off and landing at the Atlanta airport that he'd like taken that day, and it was so different and so weird and so amazing, but what really caught me off guard was this, because I'd, I'd heard that he was his concerts were pretty interesting, was that I'd listened to this album, Illinois, on repeat for like six months. I knew every word, I knew every beat, every rhythm, every rise and fall of every song. But it wasn't until I went to this concert and saw the man who'd made this music, I mean really made it, that I really felt like I experienced that music and experienced those songs. And it wasn't that he changed the songs It was that the CD that I listened to them on, the iPod that I listened to them on, couldn't carry the richness of the sounds that he was making. It wasn't enough to hold the upright bass. The CD wasn't enough to hold the banjo strumming or the trumpets rising or the cymbals crashing or the rise and the fall of his voice. It wasn't that I heard his music for the first time. It was that I experienced the fullness of it in the way that it was supposed to be experienced for the first time, by its maker. And I tell you this story because you should go out to finish your exams, and then on for the summer, and then for some of you, on out even to the real world. You need to know that God is preparing, for you, preparing you for the experience of the fullness of who He is, and of His glory. And as you sit out on the quad, and you have just a totally Instagrammable day, you think you know what real joy is. And you think you know what real life is. And you think that you know as you fall in love with someone, or you sit with your crush, that you know what real love and real pleasure is. But you haven't experienced the fullness of what you were made for. Not yet. And God is preparing you for those things. And He's making you new for those things. He's making the world new for those things. And it's coming. And it's the blessing that God is going to pour into your lap. From this time forth and forevermore. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this blessing that you give us. Lord, that for the hungry you are bread. And that for the thirsty you are water. And for those who feel like they've lost their way, you are the path. And Lord, I pray that you would prepare our feet to walk that. You prepare our hearts and our stomachs to drink and to eat of the richness and the fullness of who you are and what you offer us. Lord, that we wouldn't settle for idols. Lord, that we wouldn't settle for things that just reflect your glory. But God, that we would hope and long for the fullness of who you are and what you've promised us through your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Please stand and sing with us. <clears throat> 